0: The episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. Now a nurse practitioner, Donna Vandenbosch was ritually abused by Father Joseph Maskell. Maskwell also left Donna with a hypnotic suggestion that if she ever told anyone about her experience, she would have to commit suicide. This is Donna's story. Ask you a question. How did you first get in contact with Donna? Did you know her before the whole uh Sister Kathy episode?
1: I did not. That's a great question too, because Donna and I have been round and round, haven't we, Donna?
0: Oh my so, god.
1: Up
2: I
0: know. Um I, know.
1: I met right. I knew um I was in contact with Donna's cousin, Debbie Hannon, before I met Donna. And Debbie would talk on the Archbishop Keogh survivors page about how her cousin knew some things about Joseph Maskell and about some things that happened at Keogh, but was not able to talk about it. And Debbie offered to communicate with Donna and to see if Donna could start to talk about it, which was very interesting to me. And so Donna, at first, was a little resistant. And then Debbie would get her just answer yes and no questions about what happened. And when I finally began to communicate online with Donna, um, I came to find out that she told me when she was abused by Joseph Maskell that he gave her a post-hypnotic suggestion that if she ever talked about it, she would actually have to commit suicide, which is a horrible thing to do to a young teenager. But that has kind of been an obstacle for Donna. And Donna is going to tell you more about her own history. But I have been communicating with Donna for probably four years online um, and by phone. And so that's how we came to know each other
0: Perfect. <laughs> Donna, I had no idea about that hypnotic thing, and I'd love for you to go into more details in it, you know, into that I... in just a bit. Okay. But first I want to ask you, can you start talking to me about, you know, when you first started attending Keo and when um, the abuse I'll, started for I'll you? I'll go
2: back. I like to start when I was oh, Student at St. Clements, Father Maskell came to my school at St. Clements when I was like in seventh grade, and that's when I noticed the whole parish and church started um, changing. And it, uh, and this was in 1968, so I really had known him before I went to Yale. We, we. The young girls all knew that that he was up to evil because, like, one day I'm walking home with my girlfriend, and they said, um, Maskell is um, having uh, parties in back of the rectory, and, uh, and the boys are all going over there to drink. And uh, I said, I don't believe it. And I said, um, prove it. And they showed me a snapshot, and I just saw it for a couple minutes. And it was a snapshot in back of the rectory, and the boys, and there were some um, girls there, and there was one nun in the picture, and they were playing volleyball in back. Uh, and the nun had on regular clothes, and um, she did have a habit had a short veil, which was a big change back then. And it was shocking to see, like, it was out of the ordinary to see a sister in regular clothes. Then they took the picture away from me, and we kept on walking home. And we would walk through Lansdowne, which has wooded areas, and I would walk to my grandmother's house after school. It was really the first time that I had any connection with them, and then I was a cool um, seventh grader, went to my first dance with one of my um, girlfriends, and I dressed all up and got my first pair of high heels and wore to the dance, and my parents came to pick me up after the dance, and Maxwell came in a police car, jumped out of the police car while all these kids are crossing the street. And he almost, like, hit everybody. And my my uh, father jumped out of the car and like, yelling, who is that? And I heard one of my cousins who went to the school say, run, Donna, run, when they saw Maskell. And uh, I didn't know what they were talking about. And he had jumped out of that police car with, like, a black cape on And he had one, this big crucifix that had gems in it that his mother had given him. He looked like Barnabas Collins from Dark Shadows. (laughs) He was just so odd and weird. Everything was weird about him. And that was like my first big encounter with him. Then his mother came to school and started changing my school routine. Like, we had to go to Stations of the Cross because she wanted. And I would sit there as a um, resentful that my mother couldn't make decisions like his mother. And I'm thinking, you know, what a dog is bringing his mom to school like this when I can't bring my mom. Like, Mm -hmm. it was all just so strange. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another day, he showed up in a religion class and taught religion class to us, and this boy started screaming at him about a job strap up on his bed, and I was so horrified at hearing this, you know, in seventh grade. I was so embarrassed. I just laid my head on my desk. I know I was feet red, and the boy was yelling, and he was yelling over the boy so, so we couldn't hear. The boy ran in the cloakroom in the back. And thank God the bell rang then, and we all ran out of the classroom. Like strange things were happening at St. Clements. So, um, and then, you know, then I made it out of eighth grade and I got accepted into Keogh, and I started missing my St. Clements friends. So I went to a um, fall picnic that was sponsored by the CYO of St. Clement and that's where I was first raped by Maskell and Magnus my like, second week into Keogh. Um, they had dr- Maskell had drugged me, a cup of soda was given to me and I um, 15 minutes of driving, driving to Avalon State Park I was Like, my cousin thought I was drinking with a boy, and that was just not true. I I had drank a Coke, and I was um, stumbling all over, and this boy had led me down a dirt path road to where a police car was, and Maskell got out of the car, and, and then it was Magnus that got out of the car and started hugging me and pulling my pants down. I was becoming really woozy, and Magnus right there with masks standing over watching. And Mm -hmm. and, um, it was daylight when that started. And when I woke up, it was nighttime, pitch black out. And they were loading the bus, And Maskell had the boy walk me back to the bus. And I could see Maskell talking to the mothers that were in charge of the picnic. And I knew he was talking about me. And um, the bus driver was just shaking his head at me. And I wasn't even realizing what I looked like. And my cousin told me I got on the bus with leaves and dirt in my hair. And um, puke all down in front of me, like. I'm, and um, I'm very lucky to be alive. And um, my parents picked me up from the St. Clements. And Maskell and Magnus did not ride back to St. Clements. They let the school bus take me. And my my father got me. He took me home to my mom who bathed me, and then they both took me to the hospital. You know, they ran IV fluids on me and all, and um, they kept on yelling at me, what drugs did you take? And I said, I didn't take any drugs. And they thought I might have been suicidal, suicidal, and um, they had a doctor come examine me. And, you know, I could have been put away for 30 days. And here I am, just raped, all this happening, not understanding anything and fighting to go home to my bed. Telling the doctor, you know, I don't know what happened. Um, Nobody ever examined to see if I was raped that night. No one guessed. Finally, the doctor said um, he didn't think I was suicidal. And he let my mother take me home in the morning. And that, so I, oh, it was so terrible. I remember being woozy for days. And my mother thought for sure I was taking drugs and would just start yelling at me, look at you, put these sunglasses on. I can't stand looking at your face like that. You know, it was I was so confused and bewildered. It was the best.
0: It's one of those things where you're just speechless after hearing something like that. You know, there's nothing. Sorry, so sorry.
2: I I hate upsetting people, but I like people to know the truth of what kids go through.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that a big message about what this podcast has been like for a long time. Things may be uncomfortable to talk about or hear about, but it's important that we do talk about them. Yeah. Um, I, I know that you said that you first was introduced to Mass school in seventh grade. When you went did you you did attend Keo, right?
2: And yes. I went seventh and eighth grade was at St. Clement's, And then ninth grade I started at Keo. And I didn't even know math was at Yale, you know, and I had no idea who Magnus was. I just knew you know, a man with black pants and white shirt got out of the police car and raped me. I didn't know who he was, and I didn't find out till I saw his picture on the survivor's page. And I and then I knew immediately who he was because he had a real thin body and all. He was um built different. I knew it was him who had raped me.
1: Donna, can so, you talk about how um once you got to Keogh and realized that Maskell was working there, how did he
2: approach you at that point? So after I, after I returned back from Tokyo, because I wasn't there for like a week after being drugged, my mother had kept me home. Right. Um, it, Maskell called me into his office, and all this stuff was out of my mind. I had no, no memory of it, and I'm being called down the office. And I I thought, you know, oh, I wonder why he he wants to talk to me. And I have no feeling of um, warning that something's wrong. And he sits me down at his desk and he said, um, he said, draw me a picture of a tree. And I thought, great. Because my stepdad was my hero and he always, he was an artist and he used to teach me how to draw trees. I thought, "Oh, I'm going to pass this good. This is really going to be good." So I drew this tree. And then he asked me, "How old is this tree?" And I said, "14 years old." He he said, "What else do you want to say about the tree?" And I said, "It's a mature tree, you know." And he said, "You don't have a father's love." And I thought, Oh, my God, he sees us all in this tree. This is too much because my my um, biological father had abused me. And I thought it must be coming through this picture of this tree. And so he took his chair from behind the desk and put it next to the desk. And he said, come sit on my lap. And he said, I'm going to show you a father's love. This is all strange. And he had on that day black pants and a white shirt with um, collar unbuttoned. And I sit there, and he starts hugging me. I'm really uncomfortable. And then he starts unbuttoning my glass. And and he says, this is what a father's love feels like. And then he um, keeps on, like, mashing my head down. Um, his chest turn um, out his waist, and then he has me give him a blur job. This is unbelievable you know it, it, it the he, t- taking you so off guard that you have nothing to compare it to, mm-hmm. and I didn't even have. Like, I was such a naive kid, even after being abused, that I stayed away from such subjects that um, you buy me a textbook when I was a kid, I'm happy to read it, you know. And um, that's why I'm a little analytical now. And um, the abuse took you so off guard that it brainwashed you. You really had nothing to compare it. And that's why he got away with what he did so easily.
0: Donna, do you feel like at that time at KEO, did you think that others were being abused like that?
2: I knew they were. I didn't think they were. I knew they were. uh, So when I'm 14 and being called to his office, I am crying walking down the hall because I know bad things are going to come up. I don't even have vocabulary to give the bad, you know, words to describe the bad things. And like, I'm stopping, I'm looking in the nurse's office and they all heard my name called and they tell me, keep walking down the hall and next, was uh, my guidance counselor and I walked into her office and I said Father Maskell's evil that's all the vocabulary I had and she said get down there and then next I passed the office with the glass window I can see the vice um, principal I think her name is Nancy the principal standing in the hall with her arms folded, just looking at me, like, looking down at me. And I had to walk past her. Like, they all knew. They all knew and made me walk to that door, through that door still. So I was called down many days. My mother never let me miss school. And what what was so surprising to me this um, past two years, I found an old report card that said I was late for homeroom, like 140 days in one year. Are you kidding? Where did people think I was? I get off the school bus. And where did they think I was? Why wasn't anybody concerned and looking for it? Here I am in a private school that my parents paid for me to go to. The teachers and all had to know.
1: Donna, when you say you were late for school, are you saying that you would go directly to his office when you got there? I, he
2: would call... What I would do, my school bus would pull off, drop us off, he would meet me in the front in that hallway the front hallway and pull mm-hmm. me and take me to his office mhm sometimes like mm-hmm. i would miss homeroom or i'd miss mm-hmm. uh, a class first class or something
1: mhm and do you remember him using hypnosis
2: oh yes yes
1: can you talk about that
2: yeah he would um give me a Coke when I would go in. And then he would, um, some days he would have me sit in front of him and he would get out a gold pocket watch and swing it and tell me to look at it, keep looking at it. Um, I don't know, my head must be spinning or, you know, swinging one day, looking at it. And he would start screaming at me, look at my eyes and i never wanted to look at his eyes in fact he had a painting above his head where he would sit and i would always look at that painting because i could not look in his eyes because he was so evil and then um that's one of his ways of hypnotizing me and another way was to make me lay on his sofa and he would turn out the lights and tell me you know, relax your shoulders, relax your arms, and he would go down my whole body till I was like blacked out. And he he would have drugged me every almost every day I walked in his
0: office. You mentioned earlier about how he hypnotized you once, or I'm, Gemma mentioned this. Yeah. He, he, so he
2: hypnotized me, and he gave me. Um, in '93, I had a real breakdown, and '93 is there's court cases coming up, and I went, I left Maryland in '93 because I just felt so unsafe, and what I did was um, went to the Baltimore City Police and made a complaint about Father Maskell. Barbara Wallace, I believe her name is, told me that I had to go file charges. And my mother, I my mother by then had known the whole Maskell story. And she told me, you have to go down and do this. I didn't want anything to do with it. And then she said, you have to help other people. And I agreed. And I went down and I talked about um, seeing a dead body and um, having a gun held to my head and being told that I did it. The police that were taking my statement were part of a sex abuse crime, and mm-hmm. it was two men. And they started laughing. Here's another crazy. And they go when they heard dead body, they said, "Hody, you have to talk to homicide." So they got a young black girl, and her name was Detective Tucker. And they said, and she was really young, they said, You have to take her statement. And they got a chair for both of us to sit next to their desk, and they sat there laughing the whole time. And uh, I was shaking because here I am talking about a dead body and a gun. And Art's gonna rest me is going in the back of my head. Am I gonna walk out of here? Who's gonna take care of my kids tonight? And I am in just tears, shaking and crying the whole time. I got this story out and then I um, went back home, got my kids, drove up to Pennsylvania. You know, I didn't and then the detectives the detective started searching the missing person's report. And she wanted my phone number, and I wouldn't give any idea where I lived in PA or my phone number, and she would contact my mother over the years for about the next two years every six months and say what was going on. I really, truly believe this detective was up and up trying. Later, I had a breakdown where I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't really take care of my kids. Like my kids used to sit on me with cereal bowls, and my husband was working. I had I couldn't go to work, couldn't dress, and the kids would be jumping on me, going, "Come on, mom, play, let's play." And that's when they said, "Yeah, she's been through ritual abuse," and. They hypnotized her, and they gave her a post-hypnotic suggestion to kill herself if she told anybody. And then they explained to me that this would come in waves, and every time I spoke, that the wave would get smaller and smaller. So by the time I show up on the Keo page, I didn't talk since the nineties. I didn't know how this was gonna affect my present day life. And I was really afraid to say anything but yes and no and I would answer questions in that way. But Gemma and all the support I've had, I'm a lot stronger and can talk now. Donna, you
1: talked about and we've we've talked about this before, that you think you saw a dead
2: body. You know, yeah, someplace. Well, yes. can you
1: tell us what you remember about that?
2: Um, it was I remember being at a dance at Cardinal Gibbons and I remember it was um probably about June and I remember being drugging back of Kiel. And and I I'm drugged up again. I'm drugging back of Kiel. And I can, Oh, what I want to tell you before that is I would see Maskell having somebody dig holes in the back of Keough in the courtyard was one big one. And, um, there was a tree there. It was by, and by then he was giving me LSD during the day. And, um, I I would see my, my best friend Elaine and my other girlfriend and I would yell Maskell's burying bodies back there and they would just start laughing and I would stand up stand and look at the mask window down that was on the second floor and I'd look down and say, Maskell's digging holes, his burying bodies and they would say, Donna, stop it, stop it, and, um, you know, like I'm drawing attention to myself, mm-hmm. and um, then up on the hill, on the opposite side, through the little bit of wood, I saw him digging up there for just like one or two days, but there was a big hole that he had had, he was hiring somebody to dig, and he would stand over the person, to, um, the person that was digging looked disheveled and all and you know and, and I used to say something is go- going on here so that's what I can say about the Keough Courtyard mm-hmm. and all and later um, my mom sent me a picture and in the picture um, was the back of Keough and there was a cartoon handwritten, not hand, hand typed things that mm-hmm. would um, show different points of interest. And one was at the top of the hill. Something was found. And then where I had said I would always remember used to be a tree there. And it's where the baseball, I think it's a baseball court in the mm-hmm. back now that mm-hmm. was not there when I was there. And and it had that the FBI were searching these two places. Right. So, so do you think so, that do I do you think think there that was a
1: body when you were taken over there after the dance? I fact, think- to the day
2: that I was filming with Jean, you know, the first day I met Jean, Jean was talking about guilt. And I said, Gene, I know this guilt. I have lived with it for years. I, I know I couldn't kill anybody. I know myself. Just like I did for me to want to take my life is so unusual. It's not part of me. And I had terrible guilt that I might have killed somebody. on drugs. There's a gun. He's telling me he's going to help me. And I had to live with this guilt all these years and figure out, you know, did I make some family sad? Did I do something? And um, through therapy, through virtual abuse therapy, I um, learned that I didn't necessarily see it. That he could have drugged me, hypnotized me, and made me feel like I saw it. Mm -hmm. to implant it in my mind. But um, I certainly remember seeing that article and that somebody else besides me has this. And Mm -hmm. I feel that it was a true thing. But I I no longer feel the guilt.
0: When the abuse was going on, Donna, did you ever talk or... Tell anyone
2: about it? Oh, my God, did I tell people? Okay. So I told Sister Mary Earle first. She was the guidance counselor. She's evil. Um, I had a real strong relationship with my English teacher, and I didn't tell her I was being abused, but I told her that I'm having trouble. Her and I talked all the way up to when I was 50 years old. And then she, well, I think she put things together when she heard the keepers was coming out. And she did Mm -hmm. die right before it came out. Sister Judith, she was the dean then. And I knew that she saw me in her office with Matt putting his arms around me. I knew that for a fact. And I even approached her about two or three years ago and said, please tell me Maskell was threatening you. You know, I'm kind. I try to give people a reason why they act this way. She said, no, no. She said, I didn't like him, but he never threatened me. And she said, that couldn't have happened to you. Lies big life. And then one day I remember being in Spanish class and my name being called overhead. And um, I stood up and I started crying and I threw myself on the floor and I said, don't make me go. Don't make me go. And the English teacher, I mean, the Spanish teacher had me go out in the hall with him and he said, look, I know he's weird but he's my boss, you have to go. And I just Mm. cried all the way down. So that was right there at Keo. And then um, I got myself kicked out of Keo, and I went to Andover High School, and I had told the guidance counselor there I had been abused by a priest, and he said um, he was sorry. And I tell you, it was so nice being in that they were all so kind. To me. Then I went on a job. That, that school had me go to um, NSA and take um, a lie detector's test and psychological counseling uh, and the counselors. And when I went to the um, psychiatrist, I said I had been abused by a priest. And he said, I'm really sorry to hear that. That was another person. That
1: knew. None of those adults reported this to the police with you or said... No, up.
2: not one. Okay. Not one.
1: How did you kick, get yourself kicked out of kia What did you do to get yourself kicked out?
2: Well, I tried, tried really hard. I tried to do many things to get myself kicked out. And, you know, it never happened. Like, I'd smoke a cigarette. And they wouldn't kick me out. So one day I smoked marijuana in the doorway. That caused, then I was taken to Sister Judith's office by Maskell. And uh, they called my parents and my parents came down. And my mother was outraged. And she said, you know, uh, if you say you didn't do this, they'll let you stay. And I said, Mom, you told me never to lie. And I, I wouldn't take the test. And I, that's how I got picked up. And Maskell had to leave the whole scene before my parents came again. He was such a coward,
0: I can't tell you. What grade were you in when Sister Kathy was murdered?
2: I was, um, that was in 69, right? Yeah, with her body found in '69. Uh, she disappeared
1: in November of '69, and she was okay. found
2: in January of '70. Right. So I would, my um, grandfather was taking us to church when I was like in eighth grade, and, I, and he would take my uncle and I. And my grandfather was very religious. He, mm-hmm. I. I think I told you this gentleman before. He took me to a dumpster on Holland and Hammond Ferry Road mm-hmm. and told me they found uh someone murdered a nun and they found her body here and her rosary was in her hands. And mm-hmm. um my grandfather sat there looking at the dumpster, crying and saying, This is the greatest Thing that could happen, and I'm looking over at an empty dumpster, thinking, "What is the old man talking about now?" You know, I see nothing, and um, I remember it being very cold, and because um, I'm sitting in the back of a big station wagon, and I remember them yelling at me to put my hat on because I always had ear infections as a little kid, but yeah, and um. I know this was and that's why when they were talking about a dumpster they got the wrong one because it was on the opposite side of Monumental Road. But I was I don't know, my I have a theory about that that um that I think I think that Sister Kathy was killed in her apartment and that um Master got some to clean up the mess, and if I was an 18-year-old boy or a young boy, I would have just dumped it off at the... I'm sorry to say it like that. I would have put her in a dumpster close just to get the job over with, and I think they might have moved her body to the finding place, because I... Knowing how my grandfather was so insistent, he um, went to the bar every night, waved and washed the boulevard, and um, I wonder if he didn't overhear stuff that night. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Okay. Wasn't, and maybe this is something that Gemma can touch on, but wasn't uh, Sister Russell in the apartment that night?
1: Yes, and um, we, everybody has different theories. And, you know, I'm not judging anybody's theory, but it didn't appear that the apartment was a crime scene. Um, Right. What what did happen, yeah, what did happen was when Kathy went out, Russell was in the apartment and some friends who, of Kathy's, were visiting from another state, and I believe it was two priests, not connected to Maskell or anybody that we know about, who had stopped by to see her during the evening, and Russell told them that she was out shopping, and they were sorry they missed her. They weren't, uh, Russell didn't know them, so she didn't invite them in, and a lot of people have had trouble with that, thinking there were other priests that were involved in the apartment. Those were just friends from another state that were stopping by. And right. when Kathy didn't return, I, it's my, I don't think it's a big surprise that Russell called Jerry Coo. Because I believe Russell knew the police were involved. So why would you call the police if you think the police right. were involved in kidnapping or abducting your best friend? So that doesn't surprise me at all. I never believed that Russell was part of anything evil or inappropriate. Um, And this is, again, my opinion. She was my teacher. She was my algebra teacher. She was a wonderful person. She was like Kathy's alter ego. Kathy was the vivacious one and Russ was the sweet, gentle one but they were both wonderful people. And I think when she called Jerry, that made sense to me because she was terrified. We know the night before a Keo, uh student and her boyfriend came and that Maskell and Magnus walked in while the teenagers were there and Russell was there that night. So I do believe she was threatened with her life. And so all her life, she had to make a decision do I tell what I know, or do I protect myself and my family? And I think most of us would have made the same decision she made, yes. that was to protect yes. her family.
2: I definitely agree. Right. I, I don't think Sister Russell was involved evilly or anything. I do believe she was threatened.
0: And we do we all i think we all can agree that we know that where sister kathy was found that wasn't where she was killed yes i will do agree you, with that do you agree yeah. with that Gemma?
1: i don't know i go back and forth about that because now that i know that james cannell was part of the abuse circle yeah and he was working that day i think perhaps he arranged for her to be found that day somehow so I don't know I you know I wish I knew more about forensics to be able to say that she had been moved or not but I don't and the autopsy does not indicate that she was moved
2: so that's a big mm-hmm. question mark what do you think Donna do you think she was moved I definitely think she was moved I definitely think she was I think she- I think she was moved. Um, I the horrific things that were done, you know, it, it's just terrible. Mm-hmm. But I I think that they, um, and that's pro. I think she was moved, and that might have been one of the factors why it took so long to find her. And I think whoever moved her knew it, and that's why Jean was taken
1: there. Right. I, yeah, because Jean was taken there in November, and I believe that once she was taken there, I think Maskell had a change of, had a thought that she could possibly bring somebody back there, and then he'd right. be, he'd be had. And I think probably... If she was moved, it was right after Jean saw her to prevent Mm -hmm. Jean from bringing someone back to that area, the police or, Mm -hmm. you know, a family member. Right. Terrible.
0: Going back to some of the things that you had been talking about, Donna, I know that you mentioned how in seventh grade or around seventh grade, you remember seeing Masquel getting out of a police car? Yeah. What are your thoughts now about him having such a big involvement with the police? Do you think that that's one of the reasons he was that you you know, know, every, he wasn't caught for so long?
2: Well, this is just something my husband and daughter had to bring up to me a couple months ago, and because I can't tell you how many times police cars were at Kyo, and they said. They told me, Donna, that isn't normal. I said, what do you mean that isn't normal? And they said, when you went to Andover, how many times were police cars on the parking lot there? I said, "Uh, maybe one time. (laughs) And it was like all the time, like the normal thing at Keo. It
1: was unbelievable.
0: Gemma, in the Keepers, you met Scannell, correct?
1: Yes, I did.
0: Knowing what you know now about him, like, how do you feel about that? Do you wish that you could have asked more questions? Well,
1: I think everybody knows how I felt about him the minute they saw he turn away right. from the truck. Um, I didn't believe anything he said when he was being interviewed by our director and was asked, you know, what do you think about all these Women reporting abuse, he said, uh, he didn't believe any of it. And when Ryan White asked why, why would they do that, Skinell said, "Well, because teenagers like attention." And mm-hmm. Skinell was the one that out of the blues, well, there were no maggots or anything. Nobody even asked him about that. But I didn't believe anything he said. I felt like it was important that we honor. And respect that he gave us his time that day and he died the following year he died in November of 2016 and we since the keepers came out we've had at least one survivor make the connection between Skinell and Edgar Davidson and alleges that she was raped by both of them in a movie theater. So that pretty much says how I feel about him.
2: So I um, think he had a,
1: he had a double
2: life. So Ganelle, like so. I, my grandmother lived on Bataccco Avenue, and I would hang at my best friend's house, Elaine, who lived in Lakeland, and I was familiar with. Him. People. I was familiar with the, um, Scannell, and I had seen Edgar in Lakeland. I didn't know who Edgar was, but I had seen him at the office. He had raped me too at Mass at Maskell's office, and I um, had. And plus, I he drug me out of the back door. And I can remember, like, being, looking up at a blue sky, seeing Edgar with no shirt on, um, being raped and strangled. I, I take it as that at the park. And I don't know. I, like, you put me in a car and drive. I have, I'm just in hysteria. I have no sense of direction. I can't tell you where. You know, these are all, and I had met. Victims from Lakeland that Goodnell had abused. And he abused kids in Lansdowne also that went to the public schools and all. So it wasn't just the girls from TEO or it,
0: it, he's just dirt. You know, the crazy thing about Masculin, I know that Gemma and I have talked about this before, but it's sad when you look at, you know, the the map of where the church sends him to work, he starts abusing boys, so then they move him to an all-girls school, thinking, okay, well, we're going to get him away from the boys, and then that keeps happening. Donna, what what were your impressions when you heard, like, you know, where were you and what do you remember about first being told that they were going to create a documentary about the abuse and Sister Kathy's
2: um, Geez, it was so early on, and I hadn't gotten my footing yet of how my body was going to react when I hear, am I going to be suicidal again? Am I going to um, start falling apart where I can't go to work, you know? And here I am working full-time and in school full-time during the filming. I, I was just so worried, and that's why I would let people help me talk, and I would answer yes and no questions a lot till I got stronger. In fact, I'm probably my strongest now. Because I've been going to therapy for like two years.
0: What were your expectations? You know, during the filming, what did you think was going to be the reaction? Well,
2: um, first of all, my my part of the filming, I just want to say I was so honored that Ryan would take time to listen to me, unlike. Everybody else would not. I could not believe that I was given such a tremendous opportunity. I thought people would just hate what I was saying. And I was taking a big leap out because I'm a professional. I had done a um, newspaper article with Laura Bessette. And then uh, I was called down to the office um, by the director and marketing, where I work. And they told me, you know, I better never say where I work. And I, if I become identified, it was still worth it because I wanted the world to know what now school had done. I would do anything for that opportunity.
0: Did your family and friends know that you were going to be a part of the film?
2: Yes. And they were discouraging me. Can't? Do we have to go through this again? And I said yes. And because my poor family has been through it so much, and they said okay. And they took me to Maryland for filming and all. They were still behind me. And um, you know, now they understand because they've learned so much the past two years that yes she has to do this and yes it's not right what was done to all of
0: us. Did your entire family watch the film with you when Netflix aired it?
2: No, my husband and I could not he we could not watch it together. Cause um it's pain it's so painful to my husband. He is truly a sweetheart and you know I don't want
0: to see him hurt. Has your husband been able to watch the series?
2: He has watched it but um he has to, we each have to go at our own pace. Mm-hmm. And it he's even been now my daughter is a lot braver and she writes articles how what her opinion of everything is. And my husband actually called in this a radio station. Corrected somebody who was bashing somebody that had been raped and waited for years, and my husband identified this. He did this this past week and identified he's the husband of someone in the keepers, and that um, let me tell you why they wait for years. They were threatened within their, you know, with their lives. Their families were threatened. So he's coming right along. and He's so proud of himself.
0: You know, I think one of the good things that the Keepers series did was it kind of opened up people being able to have that conversation and being able to speak about it.
2: You have um, granddaughters talking to grandmothers. You have mothers talking to daughters. It's really a phenomenal thing.
0: What what is your life like now after the keepers has been out for more than a year?
2: Um, you know, people are still afraid to talk to me about it, and some people are sick of hearing of it. But um, in general, the girl, or the people that I work with, and all, like I had someone come up and hug me today. And say, Donna, the next time you go to Harrisburg, uh, I want to be there with you. And I said, certainly. Yeah. And um, it's a good reaction, but they don't like hearing about it every day. And uh, they tell me things privately, they don't talk openly. And uh, I want to see it talked about openly. <laughs> where people are more comfortable, but this is a big start.
0: Do you have any advice for anyone who may have been going through something similar that you have been, you know, that that you were forced to be put through since seventh grade?
2: Please get some therapy. Please call, talk to it. And Oh, it's so hard to get therapy. Like the, the, um, in the nineties, When they were given therapy, they were actually harming people. And um, now therapy for ritual abuse and complex post-traumatic stress disease has come so far. There are ways of controlling your symptoms and getting relief. But um, do not go to the church because they're going to use things against you. And, um, you know, I have such a poor opinion about the police. It is hard when I, I know people sat there and laughed at me. But I I have to be a little open that it's a new generation. I have um, talked to, like, Robin Teal, who has been very sweet and kind to me um, from the police department. And, it's a new age coming about. Um, well, ta-
1: um, Donna, can you tell us about your what happened in Harrisburg that you attended this week? Because yes. I think it's important that everybody hears about your your um
2: activities since, yes. since the Mark Keepers Rousey was released. Mark Rossey and um when he's a representative from Pennsylvania who had been abused by a priest, and him and Josh Shapiro and my friend Mary McHale was part of the uh, Mary McHale was part of Josh Shapiro's grand jury report, and um, this week the um, house part passed. Now it goes on to the Senate for lifting the statute limitation limitations to the age of 50 and for an open window, meaning a retroactive um, look back where people can, for two years, can put a civil suit in against the cover-up and the abuse. Because oh, when I was really sick in the 90s, I used to write Amnesty International every day and tell them I have no civil rights in my own country, you know. I had been to the church and told them that I knew that um, I needed to know where Massville was to feel safe and to make sure my kids were safe. And they told me they didn't know him. And uh, they came up to that. I agreed to meet them in Pennsylvania. And um in fact Keeler had went and sent me a check for thirty thousand dollars in the um nineties just to like go away. And here they they let Maskell go to Ireland, So, you know, I couldn't do anything. And then he sneaks he comes back into the country. They still are hiding, and nobody could tell me. After I had guns, people put guns in my mouth. Like, if you ever watch me eat food, I pick with my fingers. I cannot stand metal in my mouth. Like, when I go to the dentist, I would go for dental care, sit in a chair, and the the dentist would put an instrument in my mouth, and... um, I'd say, I had to leave now. And then finally, they said, Donna, what's up? And I said, a priest abused me, and he put a gun in my mouth. So then the dentist started working with me and using the ice cubes to see, like, where the pain was and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to tell people so you can get health care and all. One of the things I'm working on in therapy I really don't feel pain like other people feel pain. And they think that's one of the post-hypnotic suggestions is that I wouldn't feel pain. And one day I was at work and my finger got bent all the way back and they sent me to the emergency room. And they take a picture of both my hands and every bone has been broken in my hand. I don't remember anything traumatic. And every bone, is, I had so many fractures in my fever that, um you know, it's unbelievable. Yeah,
1: I think um, when we think about survivors, the emotional and mental anguish is yes. is something that we focus on. But as a nurse practitioner, I know you've been especially aware of, the physical health issues that yeah, yeah. can, I can had be a, part uh,
2: of the abuse. I had an aneurysm go off in my brain, and the typical sign you look for is a thunderclap, big headache. I didn't have that. Like I, I kept on insisting that they check my head like because I could feel blood running in the inside of my skull. But I just didn't have the pain. Another time, like I had a fever for a couple months. We couldn't figure it out. And it was my appendix had rupture. I didn't have any pain. Well, wow. You know. And it's hard to connect with your body when you've been disconnected from it. I know that it's sounds weird, weird but you know, every survivor no, knows what I mean. That's a great statement, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: And, like, before I mentioned that I was strangled, and it's so embarrassing. Like, I went for a thyroid scan, and it's embarrassing because I know all these people. And all of a sudden, they came out and they said, "Um, Donna, did you ever have an operation on your parathyroid? And I said, no. And they said, were you ever strangled? I said, oh, "Oh, no, not me, not me. Mm -hmm. You know, I just want to live a regular life. Yeah. So that's something forensically, people that were severely strangled, you know, have that injury.
0: Mm -hmm. And I know
2: I didn't have an operation.
0: Before we close up, Donna, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about with us?
2: Well, uh, just how important this is an election year. Call your senators. See where they stand on these, um, you know, SOLs and open windows. And it's just not against the Catholic Church. I'm for no survivor left behind. This is important, too. I am... Really, a caring person, and like I had run away too, about during this whole episode, ran away. I had thirty-five cents in my pocket, and I'm I, hitchhiking to Ocean City, and I'm hungry. So I stop at a gas station, and I have, uh, I go in and get to get a thirty-cent hot dog. And I'm sitting on the curb. I'm just starving and thinking, where am I going to sleep? And um I don't know. The hot dog fell in the gutter and a dog came back and grabbed it. And I felt oh I felt so low. I didn't know whether grab the hot dog from the dog or what. And I just laid on the grass and started crying. And these teachers from Maine we working the carnival and they stopped and asked me where I, uh, what was wrong. And I was just crying and they took me back to the campground with them where a tent, they had tents and they gave me a tent and they, um, you know, would feed me and then I would go work with them on the boardwalk and get paid. And it and then, um, Later, I made enough money where I could get my own hotel room. I split it with a girlfriend, and she worked for Gypsies there. And at the end of the summer, the Gypsies took her to Florida with them. And the mom told me, Go take this test. And I did. And I won three nursing school books and tuition. You know, and I'm going to tell anybody that's homeless. Things can look up, you know. The kindness of strangers, as Gemma was a stranger to me, the the kindness of strangers is overwhelming to me. I um I feel like the world is my family, and I want to tell no one, everyone, never, never give up. Life, every minute, is worth living.